Welcome to What Consumers Want, the podcast that brings the voice of the consumer to the healthcare conversation. Are you interested in getting outside the healthcare echo chamber? Using research and insights, we explore key healthcare opportunities through the eyes of the end consumer. We examine trends outside of healthcare that are driving consumer expectations, as well as what consumers expect from brands now and in the future. This podcast is brought to you by MDRG, a market research firm that unlocks the whole mind for deeper insights. I'm your host, Lauren McCabe. Let's find out what consumers want. This month, we're going to explore mental health and its increasingly important role to consumers. We have a great conversation on deck for you with MDRG's Sandra Brown and our guest, Chris Hemphill, Senior Director, Commercial Intelligence at Wobot. You will hear Chris and Sandra dig into the role of empathy in providing consumers with better mental health solutions and experiences. And this week's Outside the Echo Chamber will explore mental health as a critical issue that affects millions and challenges the traditional healthcare system. We will, of course, hear from our consumers. This month, we ask consumers, where do you go for support during tough times? Here's what they had to say. Usually I go first to my spouse or secondly to my adult children or thirdly to a close friend or colleague in work. I usually go to my partner or some friends like to get together. During tough times, when I really think about it, the one person I always go to to rely on for strengths and, su- and support and advice is my mom. During tough times, I usually turn to my sister because no one knows me better. My family, my husband, my friends, therapy. Hello, I am here with Chris Hemphill, a data science expert in digital mental health. I know that they are an avid runner and an amazing podcast host. The current podcast being Meeting of the Minds. Welcome, Chris. Appreciate the intro. Thank you, Sandra. It might be helpful for you to tell us a bit about your role at Wobot and about Wobot itself before we get into some of my questions. Okay. Okay. Well, let's start with Wobot itself. Wobot is a chat app. It's a tool that is there for people when they have mental health needs. So think about the ability to have a conversation and it was with a bot or I think people say relational agent if they want to sound fancy, I say chat bot. It's a model that is trained on cognitive behavioral therapy along with other therapeutic methods. So the the whole idea, and this, this company has been around since before all this chat GPT stuff, I have to bring it up, is it's been around since uh, 2017. So it's been a focus on having a uh, conversational way to talk about these challenges that you might be having from a mental health perspe- perspective for, for a very long time, established by uh, Dr. Ali Darcy, who is a Stanford-trained clinical psychologist. I think that it's important to bring that up because the whole idea behind these conversations is not to generate these just semi-random answers to the prompts that people are putting in or the, or the responses that people are putting in, but really to go down very specific clinically validated pathways to help guide people through a CBT process. So my role within that, that like this is a this is an app that is uh, like clearly being a chatbot is very very focused on having an open communication, a natural communication back and forth between the uh, agent. So my role in data science is to understand 
the communication patterns that are happening at an aggregate level and help healthcare decisions better make decisions about things like behavioral health integration and how this might play a role within their overall ecosystem. I don't know if that sounds weird. Let, let me, is, does that clearly uh, lay it out? Is, is that crazy? Absolutely. And I think that with all of the conversation that's going on about chat GPT right now, that description might have not been as intuitive even six or nine months ago. So I think that it should be very clear as to the role that Wobot is playing. One of the things that I love about it that we've talked about is the fact that it is 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So it is an always-on solution for people when they need to access mental health resources. Yeah, that's an extremely important point because when we talk about the company's mission is uh, radically accessible care, but when we talk about the access challenge, it's not just limited to the fact that there is a major shortage of uh, workers who can, like we were talking about clinical psychologists or licensed clinical social workers, like there's, there's a shortage of people that can address mental health needs. But even if we were to solve for that, one thing that, that's extremely important is that between 72 and 78%, depending on what population you're looking at, of the usage within Wobot happens outside of your nine to five clinic hours with a heavy concentration of like our longest conversations around 2 a.m. So we, we look at it as an adjunct, something that, that can work alongside and a, a lot of a significant number of our users are seeing therapists or are seeing, uh, seeing psychiatrists and things like that. But this is something that works alongside, especially in times that people have needs that, that, that just can't be addressed in person. I love that. But one of the things that we are doing here at MDRG is really exploring the role of empathy in providing consumers with better mental health solutions and better experiences. I'd love your thoughts on the role that empathy plays in this arena, or not at all from your perspective. You know, there, there's the role that empathy does play and uh, should play. I'd like to focus a, a lot on on just, I can't say we, I'm going to say me personally, what I, I see as, uh, as an ideal. I honestly just had a conversation yesterday with Dr. Colette, Dr. Z. Colette Edwards, who is a, she's a practicing gastro, gastroenterologist, but also just wrote a book called Navigating Your Healthcare Journey. And the reason I want to focus in on that is because she was talking about the challenges and difficulties that people have, like accessing services that they need, advocating for themselves if they don't feel like uh, their provider team, caretaking team is listening to them. These are the types of issues that, that, that she was talking about. And the major, the reason that she wrote that book, which is directed towards a consumer, it's literally a guide, an instruction manual on how to navigate within a complex healthcare system for patients like me and consumers like me and things like that. But the reason she wrote that book is because she said that always on her mind is uh, like no matter what role she's been in. So, she, so like she's been in leadership and executive roles within payers and within health systems and providers, associate medical director roles and things like that. But the empathy part is what's kept her grounded and uh, kept the, the patient as the North Star. So it was just a reminder that whatever position you're in, because, you know, she's a practicing gastroenterologist. So what better position than having your hands directly 
involved in a patient's life. But when you start getting removed from that through layers of management and spreadsheets and things like that, it's important for everybody within healthcare, whether you're in IT or analytics or marketing or, or, or what have you, to just find some way to center back on the people who are ultimately going to be impacted and often even put yourself in, in their shoes so that you can basically inform the, the work that you're doing. I don't know if that, that's too broad an answer, but I, I just think that that empathy has a really powerful role to play if, if we approach it right. I agree that we are researchers here at MDRG and some of the biggest complaints that we get about the healthcare experience from a consumer perspective is my provider doesn't listen to me. I don't feel seen and heard. And I want to be more involved in my healthcare. So this idea that she brings up of how do you advocate for yourself, aka how do you become more involved in your own care, the choices of for care and, and outcomes. I'm um, curious, like if we had to bring empathy down to a definition, how would you define empathy? There, there's a, a number of definitions I would uh, I would use. And some of those definitions, I would say, well, it, it doesn't really exist because I don't think that you can actually feel what another person is feeling. You can make assumptions about what people are feeling and kind of operate within the within those parameters. But that's that's getting too nitty gritty. That's getting too like that's that's not respecting the need the, the like, like like the 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 concept of empathy that we need so i like to boil empathy down into making the effort to put yourself in someone else's shoes so like we can we we can have a, a philosophical debate about like whether we can truly feel what somebody else is feeling but at least taking the effort to attempt to understand and knowing like if if we go from the acknowledgement that like hey just by looking at you by seeing that you're smiling i can't necessarily assume that uh, that you're happy it could be hiding many other things there like like there there's all kinds of reasons that somebody could smile that are not related to happiness so it's under like perhaps it's understanding that you don't understand and have to ask and have to go layers deeper to really confirm what people are thinking and how the things that they're going through might impact what they're doing today and how they're treating you. Agreed. So making the effort, which underpinning that is her notion of listening. Because if you're going to make the effort, you're going to have to listen to someone else's experience and try to understand that. Yeah, and that listen word is is so powerful and so necessary. And even as much as we like, we we have phrases like two ears and one mouth," but I still think listening is underappreciated and undervalued. Exactly. So, how can we promote more empathy? If we're going to operate from your definition for the purposes of this discussion, how can we promote empathy and emotional intelligence in healthcare professionals, particularly those who are working with? mental health patients or in the mental health space? Well, gosh, with healthcare professionals, they're going through such a ridiculous and burdensome amount of work in a lot of cases. Again, we, we, we talk about the, the overall shortage and, and, and lack of supply. Oftentimes, like when we're talking about workers in behavioral health or clinicians in, in other fields, be they nurses, doctors, or technologists, or what have you, there's often something really deep at an organizational level that 
kind of cascades downward into how patients might be treated. So if uh, people are, let's take a, a residency program where you have these people who are newly, like newly delivering care on the floor and working for nearly 100 hours a week while being told that they're only supposed to report a 40 or a certain, a certain number of hours. It's a system that grinds people to the bone. And like, think about if we were to take people that were already this taxed and then introduce some classes and exercise and things like that, like that takes away from other other time that people might have. And I just think that a big issue with uh, addressing empathy is, is figuring out how to improve working working conditions for our employees and make sure that they are heard and like responding to a lot of things that they need there there's just so much work to do and so little support and emotional support and policy to get it done sure and so taking away some of the busy work so that they do have the time to really sit down and listen i've read an interesting article last week on this idea of using AI and chat GPT to perform some of the administrative tasks that we expect of health professionals so that they do have more time to really spend with their patients. So not using these technology solutions to replace, but to take away the things that cause the distractions. Yeah, and I can understand where some of those tools might be helpful and, and useful if you're because uh, when, when I think about a uh, generative AI platform, let's go to a large language model like a chat GPT, for example, there's the output that happens if uh, someone who has no clue about the underlying practice just types it well, like you type in something. If I am a complete layperson and I have no idea what the context behind that is, and I send that to a patient or I send that to someone else, then that's a major danger. I love your point on not looking at this as a replacement to people who are already working in that space because the degree to which it's even accurate, to the degree to which it to which it is helpful, is semi-random. Versus if you have someone who is they have this experience, they understand what the content that, that's being produced. And they kind of like when you're working with those platforms, you're kind of having a back and forth conversation with it. You tell it to say one thing and it doesn't quite hit the mark that you were looking for. And you wouldn't know if it doesn't hit the mark if you're not a trained professional. You're going back and forth until it's refined into something that's usable, which you might end up editing. That takes away a, a significant amount, amount of time at like generating the a lot of the baseline and, and things like that, or like organizing your thoughts and things like that. But I just still is a scenario where a, a professional, a, a trained professional is, is at the helm. And ultimately, ultimately, we just don't want to just blindly trust what comes out of it. Sure. One of the things that you mentioned when you were describing who Wobot is to us at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about this idea of access, right? We do have an access issue right now in, in mental health and with mental health providers. So let's kind of talk a bit more about that. But if we could start first to just a little more broadly, what are some of the common misperceptions about mental health currently in our country? And how can some of these be addressed? Big question. Yes, yeah, a very important question. In my community and where I grew up and how I grew up, one of the biggest misperceptions is that it doesn't apply to me. 
I think that a lot of people, the way mental health is is portrayed, there's a lot of uh, focus on really extreme examples or fictionalized examples of certain illnesses. And that causes people to divorce from the reality of uh, things that, that might be impacting themselves. I think that the mass trauma of COVID-19 forced a conversation, forced people to start looking inwardly at maybe recontextualizing issues that have been stemming since childhood, things that, that have been stemming for a very long time. There is kind of a, a mass reconceptualization where people are now realizing like, hey, this does apply to me. And this isn't just for, for those most extreme extreme cases. And most importantly from this, this mass realization is there's been some level of uh, destigmatization around certain illnesses. I still say that mental health is, is heavily stigmatized, extremely difficult for many people to talk about, but there's a little bit of a crack in the door that's happening right now. Do you have any thoughts on how we open that door wider? How do we address some of the stigma and these misperceptions? Sometimes there's a couple of fronts here, which at one level, addressing the stigma, I'll just call her out, Melissa Forrest Shackelford. She's currently the managing director of marketing at Evernorth. And I think that she's leading a really big conversation, at least within a, well, partially and, and heavily within the, the, the communications context on understanding when you actually are using stigmatizing language. For example, I am guilty. I uh, Earlier in this conversation, just offhand, I used the word crazy to describe something and I slapped myself. I was like, dang. But yeah, I'm literally guilty of that using stigmatizing language in this conversation. We weren't told that this was a, a, like a, a dirty word to use when, when we were growing up, but there's just new, there, there's a lot more education. Like as we find out that this impacts more and more people than, than, we initial, uh, than we initially thought, there's a call for us to be more responsible in like, we're talking about personal one-to-one communications here, but Melissa's, Melissa has a big focus on mass communications and broad media and mass internal communications and things like that. So that's one front in, in terms of uh, training ourselves. And then there's another, if you're new to even the idea that there are mental health challenges that you've been struggling with for years, then you're going to have your own personal stigma. And because we have our own personal stigmas, we need to be able to access care in completely, well, access care or access some sort of communication in completely stigma-free environments. And those are scenarios in which people might not be ready to talk to someone face-to-face, or if they were to talk to someone face-to-face, they would not tell the truth about their issues, not be uh, 100% honest and transparent. There needs to be an openness to stigma-free environments as well. I'm also starting to see a shift toward, and I think this is a stigma about mental health, that it's chronic and lifelong versus this idea that we can have sort of episodic mental health challenges throughout our life. It might be tied to a trauma. I think I've shared with you that I lost a son in 2021, and I very much had a very challenging 2021 that needed some therapeutic intervention. So this idea that, you know, there are going to be events in our lives that we need to address in some way with a mental health professional or a company like Wobot or in combination. Something major to address there. And again, I I want to be fully transparent. I am new to the digital mental health space. I think I started with Wobot in uh, May 2022. 
But one thing that that has uh, guided me to is uh, a lot, like, like, of course, with a background in data science, like that's a, it's a very specific and narrow domain where, you know, I'm performing operations with, with large data sets and everything like that. But in order to make sure that we're doing the right thing, that we're analyzing the right things, there, there's a lot of communication with the psychologists and, and clinicians on our team. There's a book by Dr. David Burns called Feeling Great. And I recommend that one for people who are like, it doesn't matter if you're using Wobot or not. I, I just think that like being equipped with kind of uh, self-help understanding, like especially from people who were involved very deep in the founding and spread of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, this is a great book to read because it talks about scenarios in which Dr. David would have conversations with people who thought that their issues were chronic, but get he, he would get deep down to the underlying thoughts that might have been manifesting themselves in all kinds of other ways in, in kinds of anxieties and depressions and things like that. So this doesn't apply to literally every scenario, but I think that there needs to be a much more nuanced understanding of what mental health care challenges are and, you know, how some of them might like some approaches that people might be able to take and some things that people might be able to do to help themselves as well. Exactly. You know, we often assume that consumers want to talk to a mental health professional when they want help. You talked about Wobot being a companion to potentially talking to someone, but there's also data that shows that 25% of only 25% of consumers, it's a study of 8 million consumers conducted by the mental health, by Mental Health America, that only 25% of consumers wanted to talk to a professional. What they wanted was information and do-it-yourself tools. And then some people really just want to talk to a peer or a family member as opposed to a trained mental health professional. What would it look like if we took that statistic to heart, that 25% statistic? And we designed mental health solutions based on what consumers actually want instead of what we think they want. You know, it goes back to that L word we were discussing a little bit earlier, listening. I think that part of what that would look like is finding more opportunities to identify where people are with their mental health and like direct them to the resources that make the most sense for them. Listening, of course, the, the, like what hap what might need to happen first before listening is asking. So it's being able to communicate and, and ask those questions. Like if we're, if we're talking about an, like in a clinician environment of uh, one major stat, I, I, for, I forget where exactly it comes from, but it discusses that I think about 75% of where we see mental health issues surface happens in the primary care setting, not in the like that makes sense because a lot of times you might be seeing a mental health professional as a result of a referral. But if all that's happening in a primary care setting, but there are not mechanisms in place to, to guide people to resources that would be effective for them, then, then I mean, we, we lead to, to where we are right now. So I think a lot of it, uh, a big part of the focus and a big part of conversation that that I've been seeing in in the past year is uh, this concept of bringing behavioral health resources closer to the uh, primary care setting. You sat in on the session that we did at, at HMPS on it was very heavily oriented on what we call coordinated care or behavioral health integration. I feel like that's a major a major component of what a listening system would would look like. And just further on to that, it's 
you have the listening component, but then what happens next? Perhaps like a, an identification of what's going to, to work best for people where they are. Perhaps if someone has never seen a therapist and has difficulty with understanding therapeutic language and discomfort with talking directly to them, that is where like a digital health solution can come into play versus other people might have needs that are more acute and be more ready or uh, ready to talk to someone in person. It's a matter of understanding which people to send where. You're talking about this idea of doing a better job in healthcare of integrating mental health services with primary care. What are some ways that we can integrate mental health into more traditional health care, particularly as you talked about at the primary care level. There's the primary care level and there, there are just many other areas where, uh, where this applies. And I think that one important first step is to identify where the opportunity is or where the need is for a specific health system. For example, there's a study in the JMA, JMA that... Uh, Intermountain Healthcare, Intermountain Healthcare published about integrating behavioral health with uh, a diabetes management program. With the investment required with behavioral health integration, like clearly an organization would want to know that this approach is going to be effective for patients. I think that it, it's a, a matter of finding the appropriate literature, finding the appropriate science where, where available and using that as, like using that as a little bit of a blueprint for the types of approaches that you might take given the realities of your own situation. With the Intermountain study, for example, they basic hypothesis was that if, uh, if you have a diabetes population that has unaddressed mental health care needs, then they're going to be less likely to adhere to, the, to their prescriptions and their physician's direction and the things that they need to do to work along with their providers to, to better their care. It's a connection between mental health and physical health that they were hypothesizing about. So in the study, you had a situation where they randomized people into groups where they were where there was a, a behavioral health behavioral health resources very close to the diabetes management and those that where they weren't. I don't remember the exact numbers here, but there was a uh, statistically significant bending of the cost curve by addressing that. So. Again, that's Intermountain Healthcare, a uh, major value-based organization, incorporating that in a way that was uh, beneficial to patients and also like been in cost curves as well. So it's, it's just one of the one of the examples like that you might want to look for when examining the body of research and identifying whether this approach might work for your health system. So, last question, Chris: If you were going to transform the nation's approach to mental health care, where would you start? I ask a similar question on, on Meeting of the Minds around if you had a magic wand, what's the one thing that you would change? But where you would start, I, like I have the advantage of having so many, of the, so many other people's answers kind of floating in, floating in my head. So now that it, getting it back to where I would start is at the beginning of the conversation, I, I talked about the fact that we often don't think that these mental health care situations apply to us. I think I, uh, if I had a magic wand, it, it would be addressing the needs of every individual out there. So this might be, I, I could give a more practical example, but, but really where, where, I want to, where, where I want to go is like a culture that understands our own personal needs and understands the, the needs of other people and, and are able to empathize with other people. Like I, I think that developing a more understanding population 
and destigmatizing mental health care at the individual level would have gigantic rippling effects across the uh, like across the culture and across the uh, I guess the health economic scenario. So that means acknowledging that only 25% of consumers actually want to talk to a mental health professional. That other 75% are looking for other avenues to support them from a mental health perspective. Yeah, understanding when and what is right uh, right for people and, and acknowledging the barriers that would prevent somebody from wanting to talk to someone, even if they had access and even if they could afford it, the additional barrier of uh, like wanting to engage in that conversation. Which is what you all are doing at Wobot Health. That's a major focus. That That's a, a major reason why Dr. Ali started the company. Well, thank you, Chris. This has been such a great conversation. I have really appreciated your time. I'm looking forward to sharing this out more broadly. Just as a reminder to those who are listening, MDRG has been conducting a series of content pieces on empathy. So there's a link in the show notes to this series if you are interested in this fourth piece of content in the series, which is really tied to this idea of empathy and mental health. Thank you all very much. And I look forward to our next conversation, Chris. Much appreciated. Thankful to be here and appreciate your research focus. Mental health is a vital component of our overall well-being, but it is often stigmatized or misunderstood. According to the World Health Organization, one in four people in the world will be affected by a mental or neurological disorder at some point in their lives. In the United States, nearly 20% of adults experience mental illness each year, and more than 50% of them do not receive any treatment. Why is this a problem? Because untreated mental illness can have serious consequences. It can impair physical health, reduce productivity, increase disability, and lower quality of life. It can also increase the risk of chronic diseases, substance abuse, violence, and suicide. Moreover, untreated mental illness can impose a huge economic burden on the healthcare system. In 2019, the U.S. spent an estimated $225 billion on mental health care, accounting for 5.5% of total health care spend. However, much of this spend was deemed inefficient. How can we improve the situation? One way is to rethink how we deliver and pay for mental health care. A recent article by DeWatt highlights some of the challenges and opportunities for transforming mental health care in the U.S. Through a human-centered vision for a more accessible and effective mental health ecosystem that involves five major shifts. First, expanding the mental health workforce by attracting and retaining more diverse and qualified professionals, especially in underserved areas. Second, transforming the user navigation experience by simplifying and streamlining the process of finding and accessing appropriate care and support. Third, catalyzing the development of innovative models of care delivery that integrate behavioral and physical health, leverage technology and data, and offer more choice and flexibility for consumers. Fourth, increasing public and private insurance coverage by enforcing parity laws, eliminating discriminatory policies, and expanding telehealth reimbursement. Fifth, building long-term relationships with consumers by providing ongoing care coordination. Another opportunity for improving mental health is to develop culturally competent mental health solutions that respect and respond to the different values, beliefs, practices, and experiences of people from different backgrounds and identities. 
This can help address the disparities and discrimination that people face in accessing mental health care and improve their trust and engagement. It's imperative to recognize that mental wellness is not equivalent to clinical diagnosis. Mental wellness is a broader concept that encompasses not only the absence of mental illness, but also the presence of positive emotions, thoughts, behaviors, and relationships. Mental wellness can be influenced by many factors beyond clinical diagnosis. In promoting mental wellness, supporting self-care, and fostering empathy, we can assist in creating a culture of compassion and understanding for people who experience mental health challenges or seek mental health care. In conclusion, mental health is a critical issue that affects millions of people and challenges the traditional healthcare system. We need to rethink how we deliver and pay for mental health care and create a more accessible, equitable, and effective mental health ecosystem can, that can meet the needs and preferences of consumers and improve their well-being. We'd like to give a big thank you to our guests and of course the consumers who share their thoughts with us today. If you are looking for more information on this topic, you can subscribe to our four-part empathy white paper series. You can go to our show notes for a link to that content. All right, you guys, thanks so much for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please share, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. For more content about simplifying healthcare, visit mdrginc.com. That's mdrginc.com. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. We'll see you next time on What Consumers Want.